episode is about digital democracy and an analog politics. And we did not come up with that name. The author of this book, Nayanjala Nayabola, is a writer and a humanitarian activist, advocate and a political analyst. So thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us, Nanjala, today. Yeah, tell us what you do, who you are, and we can jump into the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. As you said, my name is Nanjala. Most of my work really focuses on telling the story of politics in East and Central Africa in a new way. Um, I went to school to study refugees and migration and conflict and post-conflict transitions. But through that process, I became very interested in the Kenyan political space, especially after the 2007 post-election violence. And that's what really led me down the technology path. So I'm not a techie, don't know how to code. I don't know how to build apps or software, but I'm very fascinated by how since 2007, Kenyans have been using technology and, you know, the resistance and the interference and the influence of money, foreign money, especially in the political space in Kenya and sort of saying, okay, what are we going to do next? And yeah, as Burhan said, you have, you recently put out this book, which is extremely exciting. I'd love to know what what led you to write this book? What was the writing process like and how we can get a hold of it? Yes. So the book, as I said, really has its roots in my experience of the 2007 post-election violence in Kenya. I had been studying abroad and it was the first time that I had actually had a chance to come home for about two and a half years and experienced really firsthand the whole country going from elation and hopefulness and excitement to just complete and utter despair, complete and utter destruction. And it, it really shifted my focus and my thinking. And I started to think, OK, I need to understand politics better. Uh, before that, I could do not. I was going to be an investment banker. Oh, wow. I was there. I was ready. And, <laughs> and then I came home and it's like, oh, you know, when your country falls apart, nobody ever thinks, hey, guys, let's call the investment bankers. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it was really a, an idea of how can I best put my skills and my efforts um, into understanding and to helping other societies, including my own, sort of avoid this scenario. And that's what led me down the path that would eventually become this book, because I, I refocused my study on understanding Kenyan politics and understanding conflict post-conflict societies. Um, And then when I was writing my master's thesis, I wanted to write about this tech space because I had been in that tech space. I was, I started writing for a couple of online websites that grew really from the muzzling of the uh, local press. And I talk a little bit about this in the book. The silencing and the censorship in the traditional press pushed so many people online. And I was kind of like a second generation, third generation. There was a first generation of people who did that, but I kind of joined late in the game. And I saw firsthand what it, what technology was allowing us to do. So everything, for example, offline was super um, ethnically charged. There was a lot of tribalism. There was a lot of tribal violence. But here were people building apps like Ushahidi and people trying to tell stories online. And, and uh, M-Pesa had just been launched like six months before the post-election violence. So people were sending money to strangers to help them rebuild after the, the, you know, the violence. And I wanted to write a master's thesis about this experience. And I pitched it to my supervisor and she hated it. <laughs> she hated the subject. She wow. was like, Why? this is not the real Africa. Well, she said, you know, the thing is I was studying in the UK and I think 
And this is one of the things that I really write against. There's a very specific view of Africa and of how Africa intersects with public life and political life. And everybody thinks that we are, you know, the most interesting Africans are rural Africans, are poor African, are people who are living on the margins. And that's not to say that that's not an interesting field of inquiry, but I wanted to write about the Africa that I knew. I wanted to write about my life and the things that I was experiencing because I felt that I didn't know anything about being a rural African. I'm third generation Nairobian. I didn't know anything about farming. I didn't know. I mean, I have never been able to grow anything in my life, <laughs> even a cactus. I have killed a cactus. So like, the idea of having to write about rural sort of uh, life on the margins was really difficult for me because it's not because I didn't. I don't respect that life and I don't value it. It's just I didn't know it and I wanted to write about something that I knew. So we had a bit of a back and forth and then I shelved it. I shelved the project. Oh, no. And then fast forward to 2015 and I moved back to Kenya after many years abroad and suddenly everybody was on Twitter and people were using uh, Facebook to organize protest marches and people were using WhatsApp to, you know, plan to keep parliament accountable. And it was like all of the things that we had seen in 2007, but on steroids, like bigger and much more, uh, you know, influential. And I thought, this is the story. This is the time to tell the story. So that's really where the book comes from. It comes from my own personal experiences of wanting to see uh, people who look like me represented in literature about my country and about the continent, but also the personal experience of seeing what technology was doing and the the negative sides of it too. You know, we've had a lot of interference from foreign companies. We've had a lot of interference from governments, surveillance, governments trying to harvest people's data for uh, bad outcomes. And we've seen a lot of presumptions about you know, mobile money. But I was like, you know, what does mobile money actually mean? You know, it's it's not just, it's not cheap. It's not, it's not affordable. Forget even cheap. It's not affordable. What are we actually encouraging when we say, you know, this is the way we're going to get people into the banking system? So these are some of the questions that I've been grappling with and I put them together in the book. And as I say in the introduction, you know, it's not, it's more of a rough guide than a complete atlas of what the tech space in Kenya and indeed in Africa looks like. But it's to start a different question. We, I want to sh- change the starting point. So we stop assuming that technology is going to fix everything or that technology isn't fixing anything. Let's just have a new conversation that's more cognizant of people's agency and people's influence impact on how these spaces operate. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting. So before we go in detail more than that, what did you write your master thesis on? I'm curious now. Yeah, after that one got shelved. <laughs> I actually, no, I actually did end up writing it, but we fought. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm amused looking back at it because I looked at that girl and I was like, oh, you were a firecracker. Because <laughs> um, I did fight for that subject. And I ended up, and I ended up writing it and I ended up, I lost the fight, let's put it that way. And that's how I ended up in law school because it was like, I wanted to turn it into a PhD thesis and there was just no space to do that at my university. They wanted a different story about Africa and I wasn't prepared to give it to them. I say this in the book and and I, I really do believe this, that we have to, Africans have to reclaim our narrative 
and we have to reclaim the idea of what is important. Just that experience, that's what I left that experience with was I have to be part of changing where the questions about our countries and our societies come from mm. and, and how we start, where the point of inquiry is. Because we're not all rural and we're not all living at the margins of conflict and we're not all... The question that burns, the one that's burned in my brain was, um, she asked me, why don't you write about markets? I said, I, the only markets I know are supermarkets. <laughs> good one. Uh, it was a good conversation. That's great. Just like really looking at your book and how, how it's framed. And then also, you know, the story is really Kenyan, but then also embodies a lot of the experiences that we as Africans have. For instance, you know, if you talk about the Arab Spring and, you know, in 2011, people were overthrowing governments using, using social media or organizing at least. And in your book, you have this very interesting question that, uh, that really stuck with me. You asked if social media can bring down a bank, in this case, it's Chase Bank that you're referring to, can it bring down a government? Can a tweet launch a revolution? Can a digital election deliver an uneventful election in Kenya? And can you tell us a bit more about what happened with Chase Bank and how, um, you know, comparing the 2013 election and then the 2018 uh, one that you guys had and what, uh, you know, sure. the digital space and digital democracy has meant for Kenya in this way? Well, the story of Chase Bank is interesting because um, since the 1990s, banks in Kenya collapse. It's been an unfortunate pattern and there's been a lot of great research on this and a great writing on this. But every because of the levels of fraud and the levels of mismanagement in the banking sector, every couple of years we have a wave of three, four, five banks, indigenous banks shutting down, taking people's deposits, savings with them. But the Chase Bank situation was really interesting because it was the first time that the bank or the banking sector tried to link the collapse of the bank to what people were saying on social media. So a couple of months before, Imperial Bank had collapsed and it had taken people's deposits. It turned out that the CEO of the bank had been taking money from the bank and using it to bribe officials to stop them from investigating his the fraud at the bank. There was a whole scam, but it didn't really register because it was like the last of that previous generation of fraud stories that kind of bleeped and then kind of went quiet. With Chase Bank, one morning a person on Twitter said, you know, she tweeted out just a very innocuous tweet and said, it looks like Chase Bank is going to follow Imperial Bank and also going to collapse, you know, something like that. And the bank responded very vehemently because at this, by this point, almost all private corporations and even a lot of public corporations in Kenya are on Twitter. So they're responding in real time to customer complaints, observations. And so they reacted and they said, There's the, these are all rumors. This is so untrue. We are in good shape. Everything's fine. And less than a week later, the bank was shut down. All the branches were padlocked, no money going in, no money going out. It was the last, it was the first week of the month. I have friends who couldn't make rent, people who couldn't pay school fees, people who couldn't pay anything. It was terrible because Chase Bank was one of the largest mid-sized banks in the country. The official line on Chase Bank is that because of the panic induced by social media, there was a run on the bank. And the CBK, the Central Bank of Kenya, agreed. They said the run on the bank was triggered by social media. But a lot of us who are watching the situation, and we have, you know, digital analysts like Nigeria Sambuli, were watching the situation and saying, that's not 
true. The problem with Chase Bank was that you're only supposed to have 10% has to be physical money. The rest of it has to be, can't be over 100% of your loan book. Chase Bank had loaned out up to 300% of its loan book. They were basically running around town, giving people loans, uh, borrow, and most of the people who had these loans were staff members, so they were getting them at a massive discount. And they didn't have the money that they said they had. So when people tried to go and withdraw even a thousand shillings, they didn't have that money in hand. It was all like, um, in Israeli, we call it pata potea, this game where you hide a marble under a cup and you move the cups around yeah, and you're right. to try and guess, you know, you're supposed to try and guess where the, the marble is. It's pretty much that's what was happening was that there was, they didn't have any money. And it was a failure of oversight. It was a failure of regulation. So that's the question that, I wanted to start off this conversation with, because according to the government, uh, central bank especially, it was social media's fault. They destroyed Chase Bank. They killed Chase Bank. And if they hadn't been a tweet, if they hadn't been the WhatsApp messages, then Chase Bank would have survived. But that argument to me overlooks all of the fraud and all of the misrepresentation and all of the stuff that had been happening in the background that the regulators missed. When you put those two things together, I think this is a great way to start thinking about the politics or the sociology of technology, is that we always say ICT for D and we say, you know, a mobile phone in every hand and, you know, the Arab Spring started on Twitter. But to me, I don't think that's exactly, I don't think it's as linear as that. I think people have agency and people have creativity and they will use whatever space is available and there's certain characteristics of social media, especially, that make it really amenable to planning, you know, movements and building movements and things like that. But it's more of a reflection of the society in which the tool is deployed. Because in other countries, social media is primarily used, you know, Snapchat to share pictures, filters, things like that. <laughs> and and I think it's time that we had a little bit more of a complicated conversation about what digital digitization means. And, and that's where the election comes in. Because when we had the 2007 election violence, we had a commission and the commission said, the problem in Kenya is trust. People don't trust the electoral system and they don't trust the outcome. And so if we make it a digital election, people will trust it again. So we spent millions in the 2017 election in Kenya was the most expensive election in the world per wow. capita. And we tested it a little bit in 2013. So 2013 was really our first digital election. But in 2017, it was supposed to be perfected. Like the system, everything was, almost everything that could be made digital was. So you had biometric voter registration, electronic voter identification, results transmission was electric. Everything was all digitized. And the argument was, if we do this, if we computerize everything, then people will trust again. And it's just not been the case. If anything, 2017 was a massive disaster. People were killed. The police went around killing people. We still don't know the truth. We ended up having to have a second election, which just made the whole thing even more expensive. Um, And the truth is, is again, what I said before about you have to understand the society in which the technology is being deployed. You can't use technology to create trust. You can use it to create transparency and accountability. But ultimately, if people are manipulating the technology and it's pretty evident that they're manipulating the technology, 
they're not going to trust the technology. You're just going to end up with an expensive, untrusted system. And so that's what I really try to go into the details of is I could write you a whole book about the digital systems in Kenya's elections. I could go into the details of how they were built and who built them and who owns the IP, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, at the core of how these systems played out is agency, is people making decisions at key particular moments to undermine the whole system. Yeah, so just to chime in here, what makes, I think, Kenya super interesting and also really devastating is that, for instance, the IT head of EIBC was, you know, murdered in very brutal ways. His fingers taken away. away, And, you know, all all sorts of things have happened. People were killed. But there was this really flawed assumption that, you know, technology will solve the problem because technology is neutral. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very faulty assumption from from the get-go, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen how everything was slippery slope after that. Uh, And even Mm -hmm. until today, it's like it's very difficult to say whether Kenya's democracy as it is today is actually intact. There are so many people that question how how that process went down, you know, and the last phase and the, the, the second inauguration and the media that was censored. I want to bring in a conversation here about how an electronic democracy has shifted across the African continent. Now, for instance, if we look at, you know, far away from Kenya, if we have an election in Ethiopia in like 15 months, we've had an election in Uganda two years ago that resulted in an inter- the internet being shut down. So yeah, can mm-hmm. you do maybe a, like an analysis of and what you see, you know, the trends and patterns within the region and beyond the region as well, comparing them to Kenya? Well, you're absolutely right in the sense that Kenya has been at the forefront of a lot of these developments for good and for bad. And it really has, like I said in my book, everything to do with the 2007 election kind of fast forwarded what was already an organic process of people more and more looking to technology. Um, you know, like I said, Safaricom, MPESA launched like six months before the election. There had already been some talk about digitizing the election after the referendum in 2005. And so there's this trend setting function that this Kenyan has has been setting. And the lessons are there for everybody. We didn't have an a internet shutdown in 2017 in Kenya, which a lot of people were expecting. And part of the reason why we didn't have a digital uh, shutdown, I, th- I think, my theory is because there's just simply so many Kenyans online mm. and so many Kenyans who would have... Kenya has only sec- uh, second and third to Nigeria and South Africa in terms of people who are using the internet um, every day on their phones, on their computers, con- number of connections, etc. And so it wouldn't have gone down quite as quietly as, say, for example, the internet shutdown in Gabon during their election, or even like, you know, almost one year shutdown in Cameroon, like the impact would have been much more vocally and visibly noticed. But in terms of censorship of the public space, I mean, it happened. The media were told that if they reported any results that were not the official results um, sanctioned by the government, that they would be fined $50,000 each. And that's why they ended up using the data that was being provided by the IEBC, which ended up being dismissed by the court. There was, there was the, you know, the, the high watermark, the moment that we all started to feel, well, this thing is all going pear-shaped, was really the murder of Chris Msando. As I say in the book, when bureaucrats start dying, when people who are, you know, civil servants who have no political power, no political visibility, when they start dying in the course of their work, then you know that something has gone terribly wrong. And that really was a moment um, where those of us who were following the election closely thought, this isn't going to go well at all. It just shows 
how high the stakes were and how far people were willing to go in order to shape the outcome of the election. I think it's symbolic of how in the region and and indeed around the world, elections have become such a temperature, like a, a thermometer or a gauge of the political temperature in specific societies. It's not just an African problem. We're seeing more and more money, millions and millions of dollars being spent around the world to influence political outcomes at electoral moments. The recognition that voting matters is supposed to empower the citizen. But what we're seeing more and more is that it's empowering corporations and it's empowering people who have money. And they're moving and moving more to shape these political outcomes because they know that average citizens will respect the outcome even if they don't necessarily agree with it. And we're seeing this in Brexit, for example, where people acknowledge that the vote was interfered with and they acknowledge that maybe people's opinions and perspectives were manipulated, but because of how democracy is set up, the public would rather pull out of the EU or the government would rather pull out the EU under the guise of respecting the vote than actually push for let's actually do this again and do it properly and make sure that it's only one person, one vote. To me, I think it's an indicator of how we are slowly, with the connection between money and politics, the continuing intermingling of money and politics. And it takes on different forms, of course. Here in in many African countries, we talk about authoritarian leaders who are basically, they're not in it for the public good, they're in it for money, and they're in it to secure their financial legacy. In the West, in Asia, we're talking about corporations, we're talking about people who don't necessarily want to be in politics themselves, but want people in politics who will help them advance their agenda. Both of those things to me occur at the intersection between money and influence and politics. And elections become an opportunity for people to capitalize on that. The broader question, the broader philosophical question is, is there a way in which liberal democracy can be insulated from the influence of money? I call this chapter in my book Digital Colonialism because we're talking about the influence of European corporations on African politics. But there is also the question of people being able to use money to buy political influence, which we saw in Kenya during the 2017 election we saw it, you know, we see it all the time. We call it bribery when it's done in Africa. I think that's the question that we all globally need to be addressing is how do we insulate our electoral processes from the influence of money at all levels? And it's not an African problem. All right, so moving the conversation in a slightly different direction. Here in Uganda, of course, we saw the Bobby Wine events unfold in real time. You know, he was tweeting himself and... Everything was happening in real time and even the news outlets couldn't keep up with what was going on on Twitter. And there was huge outcry online. But my question is, you know, like as much as we are digital activists, I'm not seeing young people who are on these platforms actually entering politics. I love the name of your book, Digital Democracy, Analog Politics. But what is your view on on young people using these digital media to influence or to enter politics and to shape their futures? I mean, I think it's a it's a mixed bag. There are definitely a lot of people who are active in politics in their specific countries in Africa 
today who owe their popularity and owe their platform to their social media presence. Boniface Mwangi is one of them, is an example in Kenya, as well as Shefa Okore and um, uh, Samantha Maina, who ran for MCA here in Nairobi. Um, but we also have Lucha Artese, which is a movement that is being organized to resist Joseph Kabila's uh, was organized to resist Joseph Kabila's third term, and the one of the leaders of that movement, Lukun Kulula, unfortunately was assassinated, which perversely indicates how threatened the Kabila regime is by this movement, this uh, organic movement. Um, you also have Farida Naburema, who is in Togo, um, yeah. the Faure Must Go movement. Um, in Gan- in the Gambia, a lot of the organizing against Yaya Jame happened online. Yomare in Senegal. Balai Citoyen in Burkina Faso, roads must fall um, in South Africa, fees must fall also in South Africa. There's definitely a lot of people who are using social media as a platform to begin being felt to, you know, get their message across um, into their offline communities, into the offline politics. I think, and this is what I allude to in my book, is I, I think we also just have to dig deeper as to it's not going to be a straight line. Just because you have one million followers on Twitter doesn't mean that you're going to have one million votes at the ballot box. Yeah. And so what I urge people to do is not to dismiss what is possible, but to think critically about how they're going to translate. They say, yes, they're super strong on social media and super visible on social media, but they also have regular offline rallies and they have regular offline uh, organizing meetings. And it was the same with Balai Sitswayen. I think the challenge is when people stop at the online and they don't take the next step. You know, the Arab Spring wasn't just in, if you think about Egypt, it wasn't just tweeting. It was millions of people gathering in Tahrir Square um, day after day after day to put pressure on the Mubarak regime. What is your Tahrir Square? What is in your specific social context? What's your Tahrir Square? What's your offline mobilization that's going to turn your online momentum into something else? We have to be careful that when we're saying that social media can't do everything, that we're not saying that social media can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I think where the goal is is shifting narratives, where the goal is building new communities or the, the core of new communities, I think social media can be a very powerful platform. But what we're seeing is where the goal is electoral change and where the goal is... Um, you know, offline mobilizing, where the goal is pushing back against um, specific instances of oppression, then the effectiveness becomes significantly diminished, especially if there is no offline component that goes with that. And that's that's kind of where I I, I hope that people go with what I'm trying to say in the book. I, I I don't think that it's useless. I think it's just a little bit more complicated than we are currently admitting. All right. So I... I love this conversation. I feel like we could chat forever. I'd love to know where can we get your book? So I'm here in Kampala. What would be my easiest way of getting a hold of digital democracy analog politics? What I would love for people to do is to go to their favorite local bookshop and ask their bookshop to order it. If the bookshop gets in touch with the publisher, we can get you a good deal. We can sweet talk them into a discount. I love bookshops. I love supporting bookshops. So I want people to support their local bookshops. If that fails, it is on Amazon. Amazon does deliver to a lot of African countries. You will have to deal with customs. (laughs) And if you are in Nairobi, it is at Bookstop. It is at Prestige Bookshop. But my real hope is that people will go to their local bookshop and support their local bookshop. 
this book really, I wrote it in Kenya. I wrote it in Africa. I want people in Africa to have access to it. And I want us to have conversations about it. So invite me. I will come. I will bring books. <laughs> talk about Perfect. it. Argue about it. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And I, this, this has been really an amazing conversation. I think I can also speak for Nima on that. We are at a stage where all of our life is getting digitalized in many ways that we like and we don't like. And especially our elections are going to be very interesting to watch. And we're trying to learn from Kenya as, you know, and a lot of countries are trying to learn from Kenya. So your book is quite important in really setting the stage and the scene for a lot of countries that are trying to adapt to this new technology and exciting technology as well. So thank you so much. It was really great to chat with you, uh, Nanjala. And we, yeah, and we hope to see you around. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. Thanks thanks so much. much. Take care. Bye.